0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media and virtual production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we have David Schumann from Mixing Station. Mixing Station is a piece of software that lets you control many, many different mixers all at once, you know, I mean, each one of them, uh, and gives you actually more control, more features than the mixers actually have themselves. And so uh, it's a really, really powerful app available on a lot of different different platforms, and David's going to be here to talk about it and show us how it actually works. So if you've got questions about that, check out um, mixingstation.app, I believe. It's um, mixingstation.app, and take a look at that. If you have any questions, go ahead and throw those in for the second hour. If you've got questions for the first hour, you can, of course... Use this. Uh, this is the uh, uh, our little QR code. This is askofficehours.com. So you can just type that in if you want to. But if you want to use the QR code, you can. And uh, what that uh, what that does is it, it uh, goes into a little sandbox that we can bring your questions into uh, to our session. Uh, and so you don't need to log into anything. There is advantages to being inside of our question system. You can chat with others. You can vote on the questions. But if you just want to ask a question, you can do this twenty four seven for the first hours. Um, so not not necessarily for the second hours, but for the first general questions, if you've got one, you can go ahead and throw it in there and uh, it will um, pass it uh, pass it along to us and uh, it'll end up in the show. I think probably five or six of, them, of our questions right now are already coming in from that, uh, from askofficehours.com.
1: Okay, let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Mitch, what do we have? Thank you, Alex. First in, Matthias Utila from Helsinki, Finland. SPX version 1.2.0 is out What new? What's new? And what would you have tried the update? Yeah, I haven't. I haven't been able to uh, try this yet, but we did look at it. It it does look like
0: there's some some changes and some um, what looks like minor changes to the API. um, But you do you should pay attention to those before you actually uh, download it. Um, Also, uh, it's there is some speed and ease of use and the ability to turn off the local renderer. So you know it's a you know, this is the app, by the way. If you're wondering what SPX is, this is how we generate graphics for this show. So when you see little lower thirds and all kinds of other stuff popping up, that's SPX, um, and it's a it's a great HTML5 based um, renderer for for graphics um, that you can use and so that's it's, it's a, um, a new update there and, and uh, we're very excited to have it as part of what we're doing and I'm not sure if it's gonna change our workflow dramatically from what we're doing right now but it's always good to see it keep continue to move forward and, and the, the updates while appearing minor uh, are very important um, you know you know being able to you know save resources move faster um, so so um, take a look at it
1: uh, next question John Snyder from Reno, Nevada, what's the best way you have found to share portfolio and contact information at events and conferences? Has anyone tried QR-based business cards? Go ahead, John.
2: So remember when the card scanner things used to cost $900 if you rented a booth, Alex? I'm sure you rented those 100 times. Yeah. Oh we What we developed is our own web-based form that had texting capability and the ability to capture. Because anybody coming to the booth either wants more information or they want to get in contact with somebody in the booth. And so we set up a web form that would automatically send them the information out and it would capture the email and then send that into the database marked into Salesforce directly. It worked like a champ.
1: Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, we used to also use those RFI cards that were little plastic cards you could tap uh your phone android had it first i think apple kind of got into it uh but uh, it was just easy just to tap somebody's phone and have that transferred good bill
3: yeah, I think that's built on near field communication, and I hope they continue to evolve that. I haven't been to a trade show or conference where I've had to exchange information like that in such a long time that I haven't really investigated it. But it seems like, pro- you know, with all these proximity sensors, uh, sensors in phones in near field, that idea of just put your phones together and it should automatically change it when you both say accept should be something that is ubiquitous out there by now. Good,
4: Courtney. Yeah, Android has a thing called Near Share that uses low-power Bluetooth. To uh, if you have it turned on, uh, when you're in a group of people, you go to Near Share, and whatever you have set to Near Share, it will use as its uh, package, and it'll show you all the people within range of you, and you can, you know, zap it out to anybody who has it turned on. I don't think it's I don't know if it's compatible, or if they make a iOS app that works with it. Though.
0: I think it's actually iOS 17. I haven't tested it, but iOS 17, I believe, supports uh, transferring uh, contact information between two iOS 17 um, uh, phones. Uh, so, so stay, I think that that's brand new of just the ability to do that very uh, seamlessly, but of course, not cross-platform. <laughs> so, so both of them. So, Android people can stay with Android people, and iOS people can stay with iOS people. The
4: it's most Brent, you get to weed out all those people of the other persuasion just automatically.
0: <laughs> you know, I would say that the the most effective way is to get the other person's contact information through a regular card, and then contact them afterwards and send them an email. Uh, maybe even uh, connect with them on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, handing out. I will say that. You know, we did some QR code based stuff for office hours where we put that on the back, you know, hoping that that would make it a lot easier for people to get that information. And it hasn't made really much of any any difference at all. (laughs) So so anyway, so I don't think that the QR code is, um, you know, it seems like people are interested. I I think that it's just a, I think cards are, you know, the one thing that I am careful of is I always make my cards white with a black, with black text. Um, And the reason I do that and I do it in a clear sans serif font Um, I don't get creative about it. And the reason I do that is because it's easier to scan them, you know, so they're more accurate. So if someone just takes a picture of them now, um, you can, if you take a picture of someone's card, uh, an iPhone at least will, and I think Android will do it as well, we'll just turn that into a contact in it. But the key is, is not to make it hard. So when people get creative about their cards, it actually, you know, I know that for the last 10 years, if someone, I, I scan everything and i used to have a scanner just for cards when i when i got them and uh, if you gave me a creative card i'd never talk to you again because i couldn't i couldn't scan it and i wasn't going to type it in i was like oh they shouldn't have done that so um just think about that when you're designing cards i make mine very plain because the goal is to give you the information that you need in a way that you can get it into your computer as fast as possible. Um, but even then I, I find that again, if you really want to be in contact with someone, get their card and then you do the legwork and send them an email going, Hey, great, really great to meet with you. You know, that kind of thing. and, And here's what I, what I have. Um, I don't generally go out and try to just randomly contact people, you know, I go to a show and if I have a great conversation with someone, then I, then I follow up with them or they follow up with me. Um, and uh, I don't, I think that the, a lot of times people's shotgun approach to that, I don't think is very effective. You know, I know that if I hand someone a card and then they send me some random thing and I didn't spend much time on working with them, I, uh, (laughs) a little perturbed that I got, that I got something there. So, so I think that that's something to also consider. Next question.
1: It's our first QR question in from Chris Taylor in Carlsbad. Where do you recommend parking your unused domain names and do you pay for the privacy option and do you use the domain email system or you stick with Gmail, et cetera? Go, John.
2: Yes and no and yes and no and yes and no. Uh, I use CEDO. I use CEDO to park domains. They have a parking service and then if you've ever typed in a domain and it was close or you typed it in backwards or something and that page comes up with Similar stuff, those are ads on a park where you where you do a rev share with Cito. Those work not so great, but you, they'll make a little bit of money. Uh, privacy option, on my more expensive domains, I add privacy. And then for email, I use Google on on my main domains, and then I use whoever my host is usually includes free email, and I just use those as uh, email. Good, Courtney.
4: Yeah, I leave most of mine parked at the registrar that I use to uh, actually pay for them. Uh, a cautionary tale on email, though. Um, I did have a uh, <clears throat> one of my active uh, domains. Uh, I had email through that domain name, Uh and a lot of problems with the lower priced domain registers and, uh, and hosts, website hosts, will colo uh, all their mail servers to one IP address or one IP server. And what can happen is if somebody else that's coloed on that particular server gets infected by a spam bot, uh, the, uh, the backend anti-spam filters that are on all the major ISPs will blacklist that IP address. And once you get put on a blacklist, any email to your address or your IP address of your email server, which just unluckily happens to be on the same one as somebody who's a spammer, just goes into a black hole. It doesn't bounce. It doesn't say it can't be delivered. It doesn't give you an error. It just makes it disappear. So be careful. If you find that your emails are not being received somewhere, do a trace on the IP address of your email server and see if it's on a blacklist, because that can happen.
1: Next question. Adrian Allback from Brisbane, Australia, asks, I have a client that is reluctant to allow NDI output on the Teams account, citing security risk. Is this a real concern or only those who don't know enough about NDI? Good morning.
5: Well, the first thing I would ask is what are your specific concerns? Um, Where do you see a security risk specifically about NDI? particularly since it seems from the question that NDI or this Adrian is looking to use NDI as a feed into Teams, which means that it's never really leaving, NDI is never leaving the network in the first place. Uh, The second thing I would do is um, uh, head them over on September 17th to the NDI Educational Seminars part of IBC, Uh, I put a link in our chat and we'll ask Chad to relay that over to um, the viewers chat.
0: Go Jeffrey.
6: Yeah, if you have NDI that's unmanaged, you're definitely going to have some sort of security concerns. I always call NDI the ping pong ball that that bounces all over your network. So if anybody has NDI tools, they'll be able to pick up what do you have if you're going in or you're coming out of it. So if you're have if you something like a fiduciary, uh, you definitely want to be able to secure those things down, have your NDI on its separate network, have every, all, your, uh, all your IP addresses tied down, and uh, you you'll be pretty secure for that. But if, yeah, if you're just not comfortable using it, don't use it. There's many other ways to get that uh,
1: video across. Next question. Aaron Koth from St. Louis, Missouri. A client wants to repurpose an old LED wall with a limited sending card into several vertical columns. The unit can't provide internal scaling for anything other than a rectangle. Does anyone know of a hardware scaler which outputs 540p?
0: yes, um uh, I don't know of an inexpensive one that will do five forty p uh the one that you that, that we would typically use for something like that is a barco um or full. what well, used to be a Folsom. now it's a barco image pro um and so you can image pro or image pro two um i think you'll get two channels with the image pro two uh and uh, it is um it will convert the the interesting thing about it is it converts to v g a and DVI and all those things and back and forth from STI and, and HDMI. Uh, it will do all the scaling. The, the hard part is it's about $8,000 <laughs> or $7,000 per unit. Um, they work great. I don't know of a lot of less expensive ones that would do what you need to do. Most things now want to process inside of HDMI and, and, um, and SDI, And I'm not sure what hardware could be used outside of that to make that scaling actually work you may want to look at the aja has an r if 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 you can do hdmi you might be able to use the aja r uh, uh i think region of interest roi um that um that that could be that could be another option that you could look at i mean definitely there could be some options related to the fs's but again you're still
1: talking some some serious investment to get that scaling to really work well next question Peter Moore from Auckland, New Zealand asked, Focusrite has released Gen 4 of their Scarlett interfaces. What are your thoughts? Go ahead, John. Yeah,
2: I just received this email last week. Uh, the 2i2 now finally has more gain that may be able to drive it. in SS7B, right? Yeah. Uh, and they moved, the, they moved the mic jacks to the back. I thought that was interesting. So those interesting. are my only two comments on the device. Yeah, we'd have to test it. as As we've said in the past, the, the problem that we've really had
0: is that uh, that we've spent a lot of time dxing the, these these boxes. Um, you know, like trying to figure out how to get the, why they were working ten seconds ago and now they're not working. Um, and so they've been a little, uh, the Scarlet has been a little tweaky. Um, so that's the thing that, that that I that we find a little frustrating. Go ahead, uh, Mitchell.
1: Yeah, I was just going to repeat that. Is that is it easier to set up? Because sometimes it's been a it's little not, bit of a project. I mean, the
0: hard part is we. A lot of musicians use them, and when we brought them onto shows, they have them all set up, and they say they work with them all the time. But then we get them, we light them up, and they we can't get them to. It won't see the audio, or doesn't, you know, or we have gain issues, or we have. Whole, there's a whole variety of issues that we've had. With the Scarlets, um, we have a lot of other Focusrite stuff that's worked really well for us. It's not a general brand issue, um, but it is uh, those the Scarlets specifically are very popular, um, but also we found them to be very problematic when it comes
1: uh, comes to uh, using them as an interface. Next question. Aaron Jen Corelli in Flagstaff, Flagstaff Arizona need a simple way for multiple people to upload videos online to be shared amongst a group. Concept is shoot videos on iPhone, then upload for editors to have access for download, suggestions free or paid versions. You know, you may be able to build up a shared uh, library. I mean,
0: the easiest way if you have iPhones, if it's all iPhones, then you may want to do a shared library within photos. So you can share a library with photos. People can very, very easily from their iPhone just be sharing that content And the advantage there is it'll take the metadata with it. So if you've got, you know, HDR metadata and other things like that, and you can also use the HEVC and there's a lot of other things that you have advantages to. Uh, you can even upload the raw, or not the raw, but the Apple ProRes. Anyway, the, a lot of that becomes very seamless if you're all using iPhones. If not, I will say that I would probably lean back to building a collaborator network inside of frame.io um, and uh, have people upload it to there. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney.
4: I believe you can set up a Google... If you have a Google Drive set up, you can set up a a folder and limit the number of users that can access that folder and just grant them access to that folder and they can just drag and drop onto that Google Drive folder. Uh, And it will upload into the cloud Then anybody then that is authorized to to access that folder can then just download. Be careful about using Dropbox because Dropbox was originally designed to do something like this. But I got in situations where... You know, it was a shared folder, and Dropbox tries to synchronize everything that's in drop in that Dropbox folder on everybody's computer by downloading everything automatically in the background. So if somebody drops a seven terabyte file in there, uh, uncompressed, and suddenly it'll try and download to everyone's computer that's accessing that Dropbox. So be careful that that's not turned on, and uh, don't let people upload those huge files. Only compressed files. Go, Jeffrey
6: yeah uh there is no there's no easy or cheap way to do this that's that's the bottom line and uh what i would probably do is uh just a a simple ftp uh system uh or and some people have even tried and used uh things like plex and bring those uh, bring those in, but you're going to still have somebody that needs to set everything up. You're going to have to have somebody that needs to be able to manage all the permissions. You don't want to have anything completely open, or else you're, somebody's going to get in. Next thing you know, all those videos that were uploaded are gone. Good Bill.
3: Yeah, I was just going to say, kind of reflecting off what Courtney said, uh, people on iPhones can shoot 3840 by 2160, and you get a lot of videos on that. They're really big files. So make sure that you communicate with your people about what their settings should be, or you whatever storage you have will get swamped pretty fast because people default to big files accidentally.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's, a, again, why we, we that I tend to lean when I'm doing professional stuff. I tend to do frame.io um so if that's what i'm doing if i'm doing something more informal i might use again photos if if everybody's on the same platform on on ios um so since you said iphones (laughs) that that would be um uh that that would be you know the photos would work just fine and it would take almost no work to do that um the frame.io will allow you to do multiple platforms and it's really fast and just easy to organize things quickly um and so i think that uh I get a lot of files on Google and Dropbox and whatever the Teams thing is, sixty three sixty-five or whatever and or drive. And they're all quirky. <laughs> like, like like they're all it's all quirky with with uh frame.io, uh I send someone a link and they download it. Like it just works, you know. And so uh so that's the it's, it costs money to make it work, but it just works and it's fast and it, and I don't have to think about it. So if I'm doing anything professional, I tend to use frame.io.
4: Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, you, you mentioned iPhone, mentioned in the question. You got to re- remember these days, iPhone has become genericized. And a lot of people just say on your iPhone because they have an iPhone, meaning a smartphone of some sort, even though, you know, a large percentage of the people are out there may be on a different platform. It's become genericized. And so when people just say, you know,
1: use your Unless
0: iPhone. Unless it you're could under 18. Be a problem. Then, then
1: when they say iPhone, they just mean iPhone <laughs> because it's 90% <laughs> of the market. Uh, next, next question. John Borntrager has a question. Did anyone else see the newest cam from GoPro, the Hero 12? I like the scheduled capture and hindsight functions.
0: It looks really interesting. Uh, you know, the GoPro keeps on putting out new versions. <laughs> and so they've got, um, you know, in the, the the test videos, I would love to test these, these GoPros. I, I think I stopped my last GoPro, I think was eight or nine. Um, and I just was like, I can't keep investing in this because the interface was so frustrating and there was still st- some heat issues and, and so on and so forth that we dealt with. So I just kind of stopped. Um, but I, I have lots of them. Um, and uh, and they, you know, I, I feel like looking at this one, every time you look at the demos, you're like, oh, I got to have that. And then you work with it and it becomes more frustrating. Um, but, but I will say that uh, the the demo looks really impressive. I mean, some of the stabilization, uh, it's now doing 4K 120 uh, and 2.7, 240 for slow motion. Um, and uh, it's got HDR. When they say HDR, it's not really what we just to kind of uh, qualify it. It's tone mapping. So it's, it's being able to get multiple exposures and tone mapping them together, or taking that raw
6: data and tone, ma- tone mapping
0: it together. But it, it does look like a pretty in- impressive camera. Um, go ahead, Jeffrey.
6: So the one thing I always liked about my older GoPro's was the fact I could plug it in, I could stream from there. I my last GoPro was GoPro 9 and the biggest problem was you always had to touch the screen to get the uh get the junk off the screen for a clean feed. I do like the way this does look. They have that horizon lock, so basically your camera stays nice and still, but if you, you know, the gyroscopes start to see the camera turn, it'll keep the video nice and level. So I, I love that a lot. And if I was doing anything where uh, I was doing corkscrews, then uh, I'd, I'd probably get that camera.
0: <laughs> exactly. Next time I get a, a plane that's doing corkscrews, we're set. Uh, but it, it does look, they have they have some shots there where they show someone going over, you know, it's a BMX biker going over these this kind of dirt road. And when you look at the raw footage, it's just completely up and down. And then you look at the smooth footage and it's it's smooth, you know. Like it, it really is pretty impressive. So, it, I'd I'd love to see it in action. Uh, next question
1: from Chris Sabato in Albany, Oregon. I'm getting an awful sound when my announcer gets loud. It's loud, but not overdriven. Line level from a Henry Engineering preamp into a Blackmagic Audio to SDI converter. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I was uh, working on this with Chris uh, on After Hours yesterday, and your first thought would be, "Well, it's some kind of distortion." But it is not. It's like all of a sudden when the level goes above a certain point, the, uh, the SDI uh, inverter or converter um, just goes bonkers. Um, it's almost like the frame rate flips out. So I think he might have a, uh, a defective Blackmagic audio SDI converter on there or an injector. Go Bill.
3: Ah, that sounds if you've actually heard the sound, because that was my problem when he said awful, I immediately thought of digital clipping because there's nothing worse than the sound of something running out of bits in a digital system. But if it's if you've heard it, you'll know whether it's that
4: or not. Um, So probably isn't that. Go ahead, Doc Horting. Yeah, see if it has a 32-bit float mode, because that'll solve the digital clipping problem. Uh, Other things that can happen with Henry engineering, if there's an impedance mismatch between the uh, microphone input and if it has transformers in it, you can saturate the transformer on the way in if you have a really loud mic uh, and a preamp in front of that uh, Henry converter. So it can be uh, the sound of a of a uh, transformer saturating can be weird because a lot of people haven't heard it before and it can change your frequency response uh quite a bit and you lose a lot of the high end. That could be happening, but the the digital splatter that uh Bill was talking about was has a way in digital sound two's complement sound if your if your uh, level exceeds the bit uh handling capability, the bit depth, uh it wraps around and so a, a signal that's going up and goes past the peak level then shows up as a hundred percent negative value on the next sample, so that's what causes that splatter. If they don't brick wall limit the stuff, so that when it hits, rolls over from too many bits to too little bits, it doesn't go from positive to negative across a single sample and give you that
1: splatter. And once you've heard that, you'll never forget it. <laughs> go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I've heard those things that Courtney's describing there and Bill described, but this is not that. It's like uh, all of a sudden the audio goes like that like it's stuttering real fast and making weird noises so there's something going on in terms of the transition from uh, analog over to SDI as a conversion. Yeah I I
0: mean I do I do I don't think that that device has a limiter on it I would consider putting a limiter somewhere in the chain before it's delivered to that device um, to to probably make sure that it's not going over Um, you can actually see do you see frame loss as well Mitchell?
1: Um, I didn't uh, get a chance to see that. But we did talk about limiters, by the way. We talked about a low-cost uh, DBX or something like that to put in the system.
0: Yeah, having something that's going to limit that, um, that, that signal on the way through um, is, uh, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I would, I would put it as far down the chain as possible. But definitely having somewhere before it gets into that uh, audio to SDI, you've got to have a limiter somewhere there, probably right at the very end there before it goes out. Next question.
1: JJ McKenna from San Rafael, California. After using Bluehost for nearly 20 years with initially great subdomain options, I need to migrate due to increasing arbitrary charges. What are good options that allow multiple subdomains for no added costs? Uh, go ahead, Marty.
5: Well, I've been using usanethosting.com for many, many years. Um, it's very affordable, it has lots of um, hosting space for, for website and data. And it includes email, although, and which is pretty good. And you can divide that up into many different boxes. But I have run into that sending email issue that Courtney mentioned a little while ago. Um, so sometimes I'll use a different server for my outgoing email, but I use it, the USA Net hosting, which is my, in my own domain name for incoming email. But uh, yeah, you can do subdomains there um, all you want
1: next question next one in from paul wallace in austin texas does a smart hub with usb that connects to your computer also charge devices that are plugged into it or does it just serve to connect devices what smart hub is recommended for mac and pc interchangeably good morning
5: well there are too many to try and list which ones are good but it's all in the numbers um When you're looking at USB hubs, you want to want to find one that is a powered hub, so it has a power supply connected to it. It's not relying on the power from the computer it's connected to. And in that way, it can provide power to anything that's connected to it. You also want to take a look at how much power that power supply is capable of in total, and then look at the specs on the hub itself um, to see how much power it can deliver to each, uh, each connector.
0: Go Jeffrey.
6: Yeah, I totally agree on the powered versus non-powered. So this is a non-powered, basically a dongle. So it has its own ability to charge, pass through charge on there. And it's only got, this one's only got one device and that's Ethernet. So that's, for something like this, I'd most likely use that. When you're talking about putting multiple USBs, Ethernet and HDMI or anything like that into there, you want to have that hub that's powered on its own. Uh, I use two different types of hubs. I use the OWC and I use a a hub, a multi-hub from Plugable. Those two companies I trust. You got to remember, there's a series of chips inside that allow you to do the different things. And Just like with your computer, you want to make sure that you have some pretty solid uh, technology inside the hub to work or else it's not going to work. It's also going to depend on whether your hub is USB-C, Thunderbolt 3, Thunderbolt 4, USB-C 4, and then whatever is coming up down the pike. Good, Bill.
3: Jeff mentioned it. When you're talking about hubs, the connectivity protocol, so Thunderbolt 3, Thunderbolt 4, I'm seeing more and more, particularly on things like the OWC docks, which are very well engineered. One of the ports will have a little lightning bolt, and that's saying it's passing significant power. Uh, computers these days have required more and more power. The latest, I think, Max want to see 100 watts out of that. I've seen power delivery kind of ports like that that only do 60 watts. So if you're using your computer heavily, even if it's plugged in and it's only getting 60 watts of charge in and you're using it to its full capacity, you may start lowering your battery level over the course of a lot of usage. So it, it does make sense to pay attention to how much power delivery is coming out of that if you're using a hub and balance
1: everything for the machine that you're running off of it. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, you're hearing a recurring theme here, power. Um I use the OWC hubs and uh they have a very substantial power brick uh that works with it. If you've got twelve ports, you've got to serve a lot of potential power. So don't use anything that skimps on the power going into the dock. Yeah, the uh, as far as basic charging of devices, uh, you should be fine. Uh, most of these docks, if we think about
0: docks, they're usually powered. Uh the two that I would the two companies that I would look at is Sonnet Sonnet Tech and uh Sonnet or Sonnet. As well as OWC, um, they're making the the the, big, the two biggest hubs, and most of those are cross-platform, so they'll do Thunderbolt or USB-C. Um, so those and they are they generally will have second, uh, you know, secondary power supply, and um, they're they're probably the two leaders in
1: building kind of the high-end docks. Next question, Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. Before I forget, B and H is having a sale today only on hard drives and memory. Go ahead, Bill.
3: I'm just seeing memory change so fast that I'm a little leery. This is probably a good thing and Bnh is a very smart retailer and I'm wondering if they're seeing a drop in demand so they're trying to clear the shelves of kind of the old generation as everything moves toward NVMe and, and these higher density, smaller form factor chips. They may be trying to get rid of old stuff. Doesn't mean it's not still very useful. It is still very useful and if you need hard drives, or the traditional way for backup, maybe you can save some money and that'd be great. But I also look for things that go on sale for Big outlets like that is could be an indication of a trend that they're seeing less people buying traditional spinning drives and things like that, and more people making the migration to purely solid state. So their market is softening, so they're lowering their prices. Just something to think about.
0: Someone, someone, we asked, we had to deliver something, and someone brought me a spinning drive. I'm like. What are they thinking? <laughs> so much content. Like, like, why would you, why would you do that to anyone? Like, you, you still have to deal with it later. Like, you know, it's it, these are huge files. Um, so, uh, but spinning drives are not, not your friend. Go ahead, Mitchell.
1: Yeah, if you're going to do that uh, sale, um, what would you use instead of Sandisk? Because Sandisk has been kind of iffy lately. Well, I, you know, I, don't, I think a lot of these are, are
0: bays. And, and again, to, to go back to it, the spinning drives make sense when you're trying to have a lot of data and you can put them in a RAID configuration where they're going to be a bit faster. Um, it, it's, it's still going to be more efficient to have, you know, a bunch of 12 terabyte drives. But, but, the, um, but I would look at Western Digital, um, you know, that's a, that's a one that's, that a lot of us use. And we usually use the enterprise level of those drives when we get them. Go ahead, Bill.
3: Well, I was just thinking you were talking about the, the CalDigit, I think, um, the latest big monster port thing. It has actually an NVMe slot on the bottom of it so that you can put up to, I think, eight terabytes of drive space on your hub. And so I see more and more people going to that kind of solid state memory as a drive substitute and just kind of building it into the system. So um, just a trend to watch for
0: absolutely and and again the the sand disk issues were specifically with these um they're kind of their four terabyte extremes i think and the two terabyte extremes and again i've had personally had issues with some of them where if i if i start my computer up with one of them plugged in it won't ever get all the way started up <laughs> so so uh, i have to unplug it to get it to move forward so there's definitely something it, that but those are their small portable solid state drives um they're probably fine as far as the other drives there go to next question
1: Next question is Hazmut Gajar in Cape Town. Whilst in London, my partner Gary asked me to bring it to South Africa a UAD-2 satellite. Seems expensive, but was it and where does it fit into an audio chain? Good morning.
5: Well, this seems to be a hardware-based um, plug-in host, specifically for UAD plugins, ins um, provided by UAD and provided by some third-party uh, manufacturers, if you use UAD plugins and you use a lot of them and you depend on them uh, and you need multiple channels. So as a USB host, it can work with a, a DAW or software mixer to provide plugins for multiple tracks or channels um, rather than relying on the computer itself to host the plugins, which can you know, utilize processing power. You offload that to a hardware device. Um, Whether it's justified, uh, that's, you know, depends on how many plugins you need and whether you're only using UAD plugins.
4: Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, it comes in two versions, uh, uh, four-core and eight-core octa-core. And the OctaCore, you know, can process a lot more, and it basically is a hardware DSP that you hook up, that you park your plugins at, and it does all the DSP and the ac- external hardware. So like uh, Marty says, it's not tying up your CPU. If you've got, uh, you know, 30, uh, 30 or 40 channels with uh, effects applied to them, you know, it can, uh, it can bog down uh, so that you can't do real-time play out uh, of that stuff for the uh, real-time processing.
1: Next question. John Feiler from Greenfield, Massachusetts, using the OBSbot Tiny 4K, and it's been getting extremely hot after just 20 minutes in an environment less than 80 degrees. Any thoughts to why? Go ahead, Jeffrey. So
6: extremely hot, it depends on what your uh, what your definition of extremely hot is. I've I've done a lot of heat gun tests with uh, with all the different cameras. I find that they get about to 100 to 120 degrees Fahrenheit um, and anything past that. When you say heat gun, you mean
0: you mean you're measuring them?
6: Yeah, I'm measuring them. When, when as I think of scattered. heat
0: gun, I, when I think of a heat gun, a heat gun is a something that we use for making them hotter. Ground. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I was like, I was like, don't,
6: don't, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Don't. don't do that. Don't put a soldering iron on them. <laughs> don't, don't put them on top of the stove. They, they will, shrink like just yes. like
4: the, just like the little labels. They'll, the, your, your camera will just the go infrared <laughs> thermometer. Yes. Okay, yeah. Infrared so thermometer,
6: i've yeah. I've yeah. tested, I've tested all of them. They get about 100 to 120 degrees, and this is just down the line. And that's because they're they're not only uh, they're not only good doing the video they're also getting powered mostly uh, in this case they're getting powered by the computer itself they're getting there's just a lot of things happening inside if it's getting past that I have found that a lot of times it's usually a firmware update that fixes that uh, we had uh, the original ob spots would uh, always do that and then they did a firmware update and boom everything went it was like at 135 degrees went right down to 100 to 110 degrees so check to make sure you have a firmware update the other thing is uh, check what port you're on if you're on a usb well the tiny twos only accept usb c 3.0 ports Uh, but if you're on a low end 3.0 port or the cable is maybe a usb 2 or usb 3 change that cable out and you might find some better results
0: Next uh, uh, quick, quick reminder, by the way, that you can still ask questions for the first hour and the second hour. We've got, um, we, we were talking about mixing station uh, in the second hour. So if you've got questions, get, definitely research. This is going to be a really interesting second hour. So um, so, so stay tuned for that. Uh, you can also uh, ask questions for the first hour. We still have some room for, for that. So go ahead and throw those questions in. And you can do it, of course, inside of Makana, our question system, or uh, you can use this, this little thing right here, uh, you can use the QR code or just, just go to askofficehours.com and uh, you, can a- you can ask them there. So if you're not logged in, and it, that can work 24-7. So that means that even if you're watching this on YouTube later and you see it here and you go, oh, I got a question, you can just type that in. You can save that URL and just type them in and they all come in in the morning. We look at them all and we just push them into, into the system. So, um, so get, definitely take advantage of that. Let's go ahead to the next question.
1: From Douglas Carmichael, asking: Electrons Analog Heat Plus FX combines analog saturation with an FX engine. It's traditionally used as a hardware mastering device. Does anyone use chorus, delay, reverb on a full mix? Go ahead, Marty.
5: Well, um, it depends on the material, I suppose, but I, I wouldn't want to bathe everything in the mix in reverb and such. Uh, I would want to use that very selectively on an individual channels and change the parameters of the reverb to suit the uh, particular track um, there, incidentally there there's a I went to see a band at a at a show and it was clear to me that they worked hard on their show and they're individually great musicians and I enjoyed the material but they were using a mixer that had a single reverb engine in it and everything was just a wash in reverb and it just sounded muddy and just awful it's really too bad it didn't serve serve them very well
3: good bill i don't think i would use that unit but i'm just, in terms of does anybody use them? Yeah, yesterday I, I had a character in one of the books that I'm reading and it's a computer that's melting down. So I can't tell you the number of effects I threw on to the computer's multiple voices in the mix of the character's head as the computer was going through bit rot and getting more and more confusing. So yeah, I was chorusing and flanging and going crazy because I was trying to separate multiple distinct voices. So everybody has different needs for the kind of work they do. I think you're talking about music. And, and probably those things are outdated sounds. But a lot of people do a lot of different work. So these things that you would never use probably have a place somewhere.
4: Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I wouldn't use it on music, uh, reverb on everything. Uh, it it happens all the time in film where you have a scene that's supposed to take place in a cave or a very reverberant place, and they actually shot it in a soundstage with plywood walls and things. So uh, they will add reverb to the whole mix of the, everything in that scene, so it takes on the characteristics of something that it doesn't really sound like. Go
1: ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, in the dim ages of radio, they used to put reverb on everything, and it was horrible. In fact, when I, uh, I complained about it, uh, the boss said it stays. And when I used to walk out of the control room, I used to kick the uh, the old reverb spring machine that was in a corner. It made a heck of a noise. Next question. And it's from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Since May, open AI traffic has declined 29.15%. Why? Go ahead, Courtney.
4: Because it's become uh, ubiquitous on everything, you know they've built uh, AI engines into almost every manufacturer of web, you know, web browser or uh, web hosting or. Uh, uh, any type of create in document creation software, any type of graphics creation software. Uh, they've added AI into everything, so there's not much use to use like ChatGPT anymore because it's built into your browser, or it's built into your word processor, it's built in to anything that you have for, for doing creative work these days. So I guess the overall, it's being diluted somewhat by a broader market.
1: Next question. Simon Rhea from Midlands, UK, is the panel aware of resolution checking image files like the DSC lab physical charts. I want to check if my quad multi-view is really showing 1080 per quadrant, as this description suggests. I'm skeptical. You know, I I don't have any specific ones, but there are definitely...
0: There're definitely files that you can download from the from the internet. <laughs> that's gonna that's gonna be there. The things you're looking for are typically trumpets. Um, so trumpets are are something that are pretty effective at showing you that. And so what you'll see is they'll kind of start out like this and come in. So they'll they'll be they'll I mean this thick thing isn't really a very good example of it, but they'll you'll see these trumpets and you see them on the side of the DSC, um, uh files there. And what they'll do is they'll get thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner. And, thinner. and oftentimes, they ha- you'll see little tick marks that tell you, you know, if you're seeing separation, that's actually, you know, the resolution. Uh, so, so those are the things that you can do. You can also um, go to a known source. Um, and, and, and again, long, thin lines are really useful, both horizontally as well as vertically. Um, you can also have things that at an angle will oftentimes show you things that are, for instance, um, if there's interlacing and so on and so forth, things at angles or circles uh, tend to show off some of those issues um, and then what you want to do is is there's a lot of those if you do a photo you know uh, resolution chart, you can find many of them on the internet <laughs> so if that's all you're looking for of course the dSC um, I don't know if I have it within arms reach, but the DSC lab um, scope ones are really accurate to show you exactly what you're looking at but you can definitely print some out Um, and and, uh, you can get them in higher resolution then make them 1080 then look at a known what should they look like at 1080 and then you're then you can put them in but those trumpets uh, make it a lot easier to to see what's actually going on go ahead courtney
4: the other thing is to look at the native resolution of your monitor, because on a multi-view, you know, you've got discrete pixels on that monitor, and a multi-view, it's dividing it up into quadrants. You're not going to get more pixels. It's going to average them down or compress them down uh, or scale them down to less than, you know, whatever, Whatever, figure out whatever the horizontal resolution of your monitor is and divide it by four, and that's going to be the resolution of of that quadrant, uh, regardless of what it, whether it's getting 1080p or 4K or whatever, it's going to be scaled down to that actual number of pixels. So you're well, not if it's gonna 4K, be K in though, this. it
0: should be 1080
4: per If 4K, it should 4K be 1080. Monitor. But yeah. a lot of times uh, monitors say they're 4K, but you'd have to look at the native resolution of the panel because that will accept 4K, but they will scale it down to something less than 4K sometimes. Sometimes they're not. You have to look for a native resolution to be 4K, so look for that word. Next question.
1: From Douglas Carmichael, what does the panel think of aftermarket driver assistance devices like the Comma.ai? Go, John.
2: George Hotz is one of the coolest CEOs on the planet. The guy's amazing to watch, his YouTube channel. I don't know about this product. I had, I watched the Comma.ai um, conference that they had a couple months ago. I just don't see value. It's about $1,300 device, their new x 3 what does it do? What is the Comma.ai? Self-driving. AI? So you, it's, but, it's just, it's, but it's a
0: just, it's an, an add on.
2: It's it's an add on. It plugs into your OMD whatever that
0: it port is. What could go wrong?
2: Yeah. Well, they're selling. <laughs> I know, I'm just like, They're
0: that selling. It's like a, a horrible idea. Uh, go ahead, Marty.
5: Yeah, exactly. My thought. I would uh, I would call my insurance company and ask how much the rider would be to cover that device in my car.
0: Yeah, it, it seems like a, a really dangerous <laughs> idea. Go ahead, Jeffrey.
6: Well uh, myself Keenan and uh, guy at CES uh, actually checked out comms.ai, our comma.ai. I actually put in McCann on my video that uh, that I posted on the uh, product itself It is driver assistance it 's any any type of car after two thousand and sixteen because they found that any car after two thousand and sixteen has to have the right uh, electronics inside to allow it to do driver assist it might not do everything from you know driving the car itself but at least it'll it'll do things like uh, help you park assist and, and and stuff like that so it's all in there and Toyotas and Hondas are the best cars that you can put this into and yeah it's just as as uh, John Preto said you put it into the uh, in the little uh, plug in the in the bottom and or anything that has that uh, that dash cam you can replace it with there they've even said that you can even take a Tesla and put the uh, comma AI into the system and it's a different type of AI system so I would guess uh, it would just go back and forth so one month the Tesla AI will work better than the commas AI it really depends on how they update
1: and then the next month it would be the vice uh, the opposite Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I'm with you, Alex. It's all fun and games until the uh, Hal takes over the car. Um, a separate device that plugs into your ODB port on your car, um, and with a car that's uh, been qualified on their list, and it's also connected to the internet. That sounds very dangerous. Go ahead, Courtney.
4: Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, on this device, does it use a phone as its sensor device, like an iPhone or something, so it has LiDAR? Is it just the camera that's built in for lane keeping in a modern car?
6: It uses what the, ca- the car has. and Yeah, which is not- usually
4: only one camera, or maybe a backup camera. So I don't know if it's using a lot of sensors to see who's beside you or coming up. See those motorcycles that are screaming up between the two lanes? I don't think I'd trust it
0: yeah it it barely works for the cars that are that it's completely built for, uh, let alone um like we're going to add this on I, I i i don't know i just it just seems crazy um i maybe I'm missing something, but it just seems
1: like a crazy thing to do to your car uh next question hasma Gajar from Cape Town, South Africa planning has commenced in building a studio. If I have a two-person conversation in a single camera frame, does the Behringer C3 studio condenser microphone have a place? Good Mitchell. Uh the first thing I do has Mark, is and make sure that the studio is very well um soundproofed so that you don't have so much noise and studio background noise. And I would not recommend a studio condenser because a condenser is going to pick up any kind of noise that's in a studio environment. I'd stick with like a Shure MV7. Or a PR40, even if you're going to do a interview type program. But start with the soundproofing in the room. That'll do a lot to uh, solve your audio problems. Good morning.
5: Yeah, of course you want to have the acoustics uh, well balanced in, in the room uh, so that you don't have any hot frequencies uh, or reflections. This is a, a multi-pattern microphone, which makes it very flexible. You can. Uh, change the way it picks up, the, the pattern in which it picks up. You can be cardioid, omnidirectional, or even bi directional, which means you can put a person on either side of it and it will pick both people up with one microphone. Um, uh, to me, it would be a matter of uh, what you can afford. I'm sure there are better microphones out there. Uh, but it would. Uh, this does seem to be a good microphone to start with. Uh, it is rather sensitive. It will pick up all of the high frequencies and the characteristics of the of the voice. Uh, whether you want to use one or two of these, you know, one for each person depends on the size of the room and where people are sitting. But uh, I would say if you know if that's what you can afford, it's a good mic to start with.
3: Go Bill it won't be bad it won't be as good as getting two microphones a microphone, uh, micing each person and getting them closer traditionally in this kind of video shooting uh lavs are more common because they get so close to the mouth that the signal to noise ratio uh by the proximity of the microphone is helping you out you could also use overhead booms on stands to do that easily if you don't want to have to wire everybody coming in but those would be the traditional solutions i don't know of anybody who's really used a single large diaphragm condenser in a circumstance like that and been really happy with unless the room is truly dead, which most large spaces aren't. One of the things that I that you have to
0: really think about is what people are watching. Are they really watching two people or are they listening to them? And, and they're, they're happen, they happen to be on video. Uh, if they're listening to them, you're definitely going to want two separate mics and you're definitely going to want off-axis rejection so they're not picking each else up. And you're definitely going to want something that sounds like radio. <laughs> like it's And so I don't think I would use probably the Behringer C, C3 for that. Um, but I think that I would give them individual mics with a lot, you know, again, the SMB7, the, S, the MV7, the... You know those types of mics have been really successful for us in this environment. But we still try to spread them out a little bit, get them get them a little away from each other, uh, and get multiple cameras um, in there if we can, uh, as opposed to um, right next to each other. Uh, it just depends on what the what you're trying to, you know, what do you want the viewer or listener to really have as their primary input. It'd be really interesting to hopefully we can maybe jump into After Hours and talk more about the studio and see what you're actually planning. I think with with more detail, we could probably figure out um, some pretty
1: good solutions. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, today's major news, Apple, Microsoft, Google, WhatsApp, and TikTok are on a list of 22 services targeted by the European Union's tough new DMA law. Uh, Go ahead, Bill.
3: The Digital Markets Act, you know, this is part of the EU's desire to try to make it easier for consumers. And I applaud them for trying to do that. They're
0: not trying to make it easier for consumers. They're trying to make it easier for European uh, companies who have been completely pushed out of the market to have some chance of trying to get it, but it has nothing to do with consumers.
3: (laughs) Well, I'm just saying by mandating that all machines have to have USB C style ports and lightning has to go away, they're trying to uh, at least a little bit make one oh, no, device this is not, that serves everything.
0: This is not the USB issue which was dumb. Um, Isn't if, that part is, of the Consumer no. Act? No, no. This is all part of this is the Digital Markets Act, which is so the <laughs> that was this is the new dumb one. Um, oh, was, and so oh was, is, I'm this, this, the this old is dumb not, one. That was the old dumb one. So, <laughs> um, so anyway, so this one is uh, this one's about uh, declaring some some companies gatekeepers and and then saying that they have to open up. You know, this is opening up the app store, or potentially opening up interoperability, and and so on and so forth. And it's mostly a desperate plea to try to figure out how <sighs> European country comp, country. Uh, Companies can actually be competitive, um, and uh, and that's that's you know they're that's that's what's driving it. it. Has nothing to do with consumers. They don't care about the consumers, and they, because if they did, they wouldn't do this <laughs> anyway. Good, Courtney.
4: Yeah, they're kind of wanting to cut down the hedges on the walled garden there, but uh, it's uh, it's democratization of. Uh, uh, competing software in there to keep individual players from uh, trying to wall off uh, their services from everybody else's or differentiate their their services from everybody else and they may end up causing the EU to be just a digital wasteland if all of these companies say well okay we won't uh, we won't modify that so we'll just shut off the European market
0: so I, I, I am curious to see what happens because a lot of them are pushing back and and we've already seen this happen in Canada where you know, governments are starting to kind of overstep what they, what they really should be doing and getting into places that they don't really understand. And I think that and everybody told the Canadian government that what they were doing was a bad idea, and they just kept on going down the path. And, um, and now, they, now they have all kinds of problems. You know, I mean, it may destroy their entire news industry by doing what they did. Um, and and the, we actually have to understand that politicians are digital children, and they just have no idea what they're, t- it's like ha- having a 12-year-old do heart surgery to have them make laws around technology. And so it just, it's just really, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to watch. Um, you know, and, and the UK has got its own things. And a lot of this is, you know, I think that we just need to be really, uh, we, we can watch, see what happens. but. If all of these companies decide they don't want to play, and they're just going to shut the whole system down, they could shut most of Europe down. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and uh, I don't, I, I don't know whether they'll do that. Like I would, I would say before Canada, I would say I don't know, I don't think that they would ever do that. I'm not clear like what's going to happen here as as to whether they're going to exert more. Um, you know, like for instance, they didn't include iMessages um, in in the in the thing right now. Uh, they said they're going to research it for another six months or five months or something like that. The iMessage market for Apple in Europe is so small that Apple probably would just disengage iMessages from from Europe um, because there's they're not going to they, there's just almost no loss. I mean, everyone's using WhatsApp, so it just it wouldn't matter except for the fact that it would start to create this really crazy, um, crazy model. But I think that you know a lot of these companies are. Definitely looking at customizing what they're doing specifically for Europe, which could really create chaos in Europe, Um, you know, and so it'll be, it'll be really interesting to see how this goes. I have to admit, picked up the popcorn. (laughs) See how this goes. Go ahead, Bill.
3: Well, I'm just interested whether there's a fundamental conflict between innovation and compatibility. I've seen this happen in a few industries over the course of time. It's really nice when everybody can work on the same playing field, and that's part of the idea, I guess, or at least uh, your own garden has got the best chance of success. But... Sometimes innovation depends on things, being able to do things that aren't compatible to really push the industry forward. And so I'm wondering if that's a tension that's going to stay with us for a long time. Do you get better stuff out of the the solo, vertically integrated, but everything in that vertical integration works really, really stupendously well together versus we're trying to be everything to everyone. So we have to dumb down anything for anyone. I just think that we need to be careful of again,
0: I think we have to be careful of certain things. Like, we want to, as consumers do, make 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 choices. When the government steps in, I think that it should always have to prove um, measurable consumer harm. Like, I think that that's, you know, like, measurable consumer harm and a Overwhelming, not just like a I have some percentage in the market, but an overwhelming monopoly. So a company having you know eighty percent of the market or ninety percent of the market. I think that when things go, said we had to put Windows in check, which didn't really wasn't very effective. Um, they uh, you know they had eight ninety three percent of the market or something like that. And so that's a different that's a different model here. But what you're talking about now is building laws around com- companies that generally have. I mean, there's a handful of companies that have a, a vast majority, but most of the things that they listed there do not have uh it's a pretty um opened market what it is is a market that doesn't have a lot of european country, co- companies in it <laughs> so that's that's what they're trying to figure out um and uh and i think that the competitive problems in europe uh are a lot deeper than the fact that they they're a little out of the out of the blue here they the the markets are you know have other challenges yeah good
4: courtney Yeah, if you look at their little chart of core platform services, you notice some interesting things that under operating system, they have Google Android, iOS, and Windows PC, but the Mac OS 10 isn't listed there as a core operating system. Does that uh, lead you to believe that its days are numbered and everything's going to be moving to iOS? No,
0: no, I think it's, just, it's such a small market in, in the grand scale. That's what they're, they're trying to look at is what is the percentage of the market or how many, uh, you know, active users. And because it's uh, because Apple, especially in Europe, is so such a small percentage uh, or the, the Mac OS um, is, is a small percentage, um, much smaller than iOS. Also, Linux that, isn't listed anywhere in there at all. Because, <laughs> yeah. again, these are these are numbers that are very small compared to the rest of the numbers.
1: Next question. Hasma Kajar from Cape Town, South Africa, asking, would have liked Nigel's opinion, but I bought the Sony WF-1000M5 in-ear wireless headsets. AirPods Pro falls out of my ear easily. These fit great, and music audio is awesome. Comments? Go Jeffrey. Um, well, first of all, sorry, it's changed the cameras. That was weird.
6: Uh, so basically, here's a little secret, H- Hasma, and that is all in-ear, uh, in-ear speakers of any type. They're all going to fall out. The ears just don't want them in there. They're going to try and push them out in any way, shape and form. And of course, when you have something that's a design similar to this, I don't have my AirPods Pro down here. They're just going to just kind of work their way out. As a drummer, I've always found that to be a major problem, which is why I always look for in-ears that have hooks like uh, like the Beats do. And other uh, other in your uh, systems as well that way they start they still start to slide out but it's an easy push back in I've also been finding that a lot of people have been turning their uh, their airpods flipping them to the other ear and turning them up and putting them in their ear and they found that it's a little bit better uh, to keep in there but the biggest thing is yeah they're always going to try and push out so uh, finding other ways to keep them somewhat in so you can easily
1: uh, easily push them back in that's probably going to be your best bet Next question. Jacques Lumentreau in New Orleans uh, asking, still looking to find what's the best speaker and amp setup with balanced wiring for playing guitar and bass on stage? Don't need a powered PA, just want a combo to play on stage that's balanced or a balanced modeler for Chris. Yeah, I'm
0: still trying to figure out exactly, are you trying to get balanced to the speaker or are you trying to get balanced to the... um, Uh, Yeah, I'm I'm trying to, yeah, I think that um, I'm going to leave this to Mickey, Mickey posted in the, in the, in the thing that you're looking for the fractal axe effects. Um, So take a look at that fractal axe effects. Um, Jeffrey, you're nodding. You, You have, yeah, go ahead.
6: Yeah, I don't have a fractal, but my bass player does, and uh, he he plays in another band where their lead guitarist also has a fractal. And the cool thing about that is they can be paired in with MIDI. They can uh, switch back and forth. He can he could uh, turn his bass into a guitar, the, the vice versa. Uh, so it, it's a really awesome system. I, I highly recommend it.
0: And a uh, quick reminder, we have a lot of, of uh, coming up. Um, we have, of course, David Schumann's going to be here j- in just a second to talk about uh, Mixing Station. Uh, tomorrow we have um, Michael Dresden, uh, Chris Seeger, and pa- Pablo uh, Garcia Sor- uh, Soriano talking about HDR, the future of uh, LUTs and conversion. These, these discussions are heavy. <laughs> these are deep discussions uh, by some real pros that have been really thinking hard about this. And it's, so we're very excited. It's really, it might break your ba- brain a little bit <laughs> as, we, as we go down that path, but it's definitely worth it. Um, it's, it's a really, really great discussion and um, you should definitely think about being there for that one and asking the questions that you might have. Um, of course, we've got uh, brainstorming for what we're going to do on Fridays, on Friday, so definitely check that out. Uh, today, we have labs. Uh, we have a lab with um, Elle and Elle is from Isadora and that is at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard, 1 p.m. Eastern. Um, and it's a, uh, uh, it's a really great way to learn Isadora are on these Thursday labs so uh, come join Elle for that and uh, we have a show coming up uh, for IBC we're gonna be covering IBC and here's a little promo for it.
4: European members of the Office Hours community
0: are heading to the International Broadcast Convention in the Rye Center in Amsterdam to bring you the latest broadcast trends and technologies to Office Hours live from
4: the exhibition floor. Join us on the sixteenth of September for the latest trends in broadcasting technologies. And this year, we are especially focusing on finding
0: solutions for your production problems. Let us know what you would like to see, what problems you
4: need to be solved, over on officehours.global/ibc.
0: And welcome back to the second hour. And uh, we're really excited here. We're going to be talking about Mixing Station. Mixing Station is a third-party application that controls over 30 audio mixing consoles from six different manufacturers, uh, from desktop, lap- laptop, phone, or tablet. Uh, the application offers a high customizable unor- u- user interface that includes a more detailed control than even the manufacturing software. And we have the creator, David Schumann, here. Uh, and uh, we're really excited to have you, David. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank uh, you. Tell us... How did this get started? <laughs> how did you start? Uh, how did you start building this? It's it's such a huge project.
7: Yes. So um, initially, maybe to go all the way back, um, I was always interested in audio engineering as well as software development. So it started more or less in parallel um, about f- fifteen years ago, wow. roughly.
0: And so, so, so this software has been slowly been building for the 15 years or when did you uh, t- actually ten start years.
7: so so ten my interest years. in in software development and audio engineering started roughly 15 years ago and about 10 years ago uh, during university i saw the need for android apps in the audio space because everybody was using ios like every manufacturer just had ipad apps and i was a bit annoyed by that because i didn't have an apple device <laughs> so um, <That> happens often <laughs> yeah so i thought When the Behringer X32 was released it was a great opportunity for me because it was in my price range so I bought it and reverse engineered the protocol at that point it wasn't public yet and yeah built the first draft for the X32 in Android and it involved from there.
0: When you say you reverse engineered how the X32 worked how do you do that how do you go about reverse engineering uh, how how to talk to the to the mixer?
7: Um, so the the easiest way is um, I use the official app on the iPad, and connect it to the mixer and just use Wireshark for example to see what's going on on the network. Right. And in case of the X thirty two, it's pretty simple because OSC Open Sound Control is a pretty simple protocol. Right. Um, there are other manufacturers where it's like really complicated. You have to view at all the bits and bytes and figure out what does what. It's very time consuming, but. That's how it, how I do it.
0: <laughs> but, but that's and, and really for most of these it's not using their their published APIs that, or, or OSC. You're really going in and figuring out exactly how it natively wants to communicate.
7: Yes, exactly. Um, there are manufacturers who have APIs like Music Group with OSC, which is pretty good. And I am use that. And um, with other manufacturers, they have, for example, MIDI APIs available, but they do not cover all the functionality. So I have to rely on the um, non-public API to make everything work.
0: And uh, I think I, I understand you have a, a, a couple slides you can show us about how this
7: all works. Yes. Um, so I'm not a, that big. A, let me just. Okay, now it should be not that big of a fan of slides, but I just prepared a couple of them. That's great. Uh, so I yes, perfect. So maybe you already mentioned it in the introduction. What is it? It's an application at the current point in time available on all platforms, like. Android, Windows, iOS, Linux. You can run it on Raspberry Pi if you want. And it connects to a, a bunch of different audio mixers. Um, there's even one missing in this picture, which just has been added recently. Um, it's a Yamaha, first Yamaha mixer. And the idea and, is... And how long
0: does yeah, it take you typically to go through and and like figure out how to integrate one of these, one of these
7: mixers? That heavily depends on the protocol, to be honest. So... Right. If I get support from the manufacturer, so I always try to contact them and say, okay, do you have some information for me I can use? If they are not willing to cooperate, which is fine. I mean, it's their their protocol, right? Right. Um, It can take like three or four months if it's really complicated.
0: Now, what is it? And and I guess the question I have for you is that like one of the reasons that obviously they don't want to give up the control of the of the mixer. Sometimes that's why they won't give it to you. But other times they just don't want to publish it because they might change it and they don't want to deal with a bunch of people being upset. Do you find that you have to update these often?
7: Actually, no. (laughs) No, interesting.
0: (laughs) They just want the freedom, but they're not using it. They just, it it, it works pretty, it's a pretty stable, uh, it doesn't, you don't see it change dramatically.
7: No, there were one or two instances where it changed and, and actually broke the app. But most of the time, it's just, yeah, doesn't matter which firmware version you're using it. Yeah, um, yeah, go. Let's go back to the slide deck. Okay. Um, about the history, I mean, I already started. Yeah, no. roughly ten years ago, 2013. Um, the second mixer was also from Music Tribe, and some of you might already know this. Um, the official X Air app also came from Mixing Station, so the Android version of it looked, right. also looks very similar. So Music Tribe contacted me, and we had a deal. And I built the app for them. That's just great. to gain gain some time, mm-hmm. and from at that point, people ask why I don't do different mixes like Ellen Heath, since they are also a very big player in the in this market. Right. So the Ellen Heath QU QU at that time was also affordable, and that was the next one I added. And at that point, it really gained traction, and people were like, "Why is this only available for Android? Please do it for iOS as well." And that was the big transition 2014 and f- from that point on, it was just continuous improvement adding new mixers and so on.
0: Are there some mixers that are uh, harder than others?
7: Yes, definitely.
0: Which, which are the it's, most challenging
7: ones? I would say the most challenging is the bigger ones from Allen Heath, like the D-Live, uh, Aventis, GLD. Mm-hmm. And, not necessarily yeah, because their features are so vast, but because the protocol is just very complicated. Right. And, and the, do you see parallels when you, when, so when you, now you're working
0: with all of these different mixers, do you start to see uh, parallels um, between how they, how they do it? Does it get easier to understand what they're, what they're actually doing?
7: Definitely. So um, at some point you see all the patterns between the different models and you also get a feeling of how they have been developed internally, just because by looking at the protocol, um, that makes it yeah easier at some point. Right.
0: Absolutely. And are you able to demo this for us?
7: Yes, of course, of course. Um, so I can. I already have it prepared. Obviously. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Perfect. I'm. I'm currently connected to an uh, Allen Heath SQ mixer. It's just running a signal generator here. That's why it's a bit flickering. Mm-hmm. And. So that's what you what you get when you initially connect to a mixer. You have all your channels, you have your layers and, on the right. And the
0: interesting thing here is, mm-hmm. that, is that no matter what mixer you're using, you kind of now have the same interface, right? You have yes. a very, very similar, because I think that's one of the things people have trouble with is you jump from a Behringer to an Allen Heath to a, a Yamaha and, and now it's a whole different set of software and, and and this this kind of unifies all of that, right? Yeah,
7: that was at some point the idea then to have just one unified UI, and then yeah, you see the same UI regardless of which mixer you connect to.
0: Right. Interesting. And the um, uh, and I guess you have you can add more features to it, right? Because you're doing all the software, you can build more complex environments than what the mixers are were initially built for, right?
7: Yes, that's that's one of the really really cool advantages. Um, one very commonly used one is called Regain. Mm -hmm. Which, for example, let's say you have a live show and your channels are running too hot suddenly because the drummer decides to play harder, which is, Mm -hmm. I guess, a typical case. Yeah. And so now you have to um, move your gain down. But what happens if you do that is that your monitor mix gets messed up. And what Regain does, it adjusts, it compensates for that. So some very high priced mixers have this feature built in, but Mixing Station now also has it so you can use it on any compatible mixer. That's
0: interesting, yeah. So you're actually taking features from other mixers and applying them to less expensive mixers uh, yeah. by, by doing it in your software. And what's the what's the latency like?
7: Um, control latency.
0: Yeah, control latency yeah. that you have.
7: A couple of milliseconds. So it, it, of course, depends on the network connection, but in a regular Wi-Fi environment, it's like 20 milliseconds or so.
0: Are you able to... Um, jump inside of this interface from two different mixers quickly um, do you have like tabs or how does that how does that actually work
7: that's actually a feature that has been requested quite a few times in the past so currently I can just show to you you would have to disconnect and then select a different mixer and connect to that right there's no way of quick switching um, but there's a some demand for it so it will it's a, it's a funny come. thing
0: The the reason that we, that I ask is that a lot of times what, what happens at a conference, so we get a, Mm -hmm. I get a conference and I have one really great A1, right? And they're, they're there, but I have nine rooms to cover. And so I usually Mm -hmm. have less skilled A2s or, or less skilled A1s in each one of those rooms that are just managing the sliders. (laughs) They're just doing what they need to do. But if something goes wrong or, or if the, if my, central a one wants to make adjustments to those rooms like we're hearing something on the stream we're doing you know that that we want to that he wants to affect he'll jump into their mixer you know typically a lot of times we've been using a a variety of either Midas or 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 Behringer mixers for this type of operation because they're just easy they they were the easiest ones from the software perspective for us to control and they were cost effective for the kind of smaller sessions that we were talking about. but being able to jump between them was was something that that we needed, and that's that's why i'm you know, I think that those large session things is is where where we have lots of different things that you may want a central person that's managing quality to be able to just quickly jump in It doesn't look like it would take very long on your software anyway, but it would it's not quite a tab system
7: no not yet at some point probably
0: <laughs> it yeah it's it's interesting it seems like you could almost also coordinate. Like there'd be a possibility of coordinating mixers through your software. So if you're talking to all these mixers all, all together, you could say I'm going to do something where this mixer is going to do this and this mixer is going to do that and it's a coordinated move. Is that, that something you've thought about exploring?
7: That, not yet, I would say, but once it's possible to connect to multiple devices in parallel, that's definitely in the most obvious iteration, right? To have, for example, scene recall on multiple mixers at the same time, stuff like this.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Do you have anything else you'd, you'd like to demo for us uh, with the with the software?
7: Yeah, sure. I mean, there are tons of things, but the, mm-hmm. the most used one um, is the custom layout feature because, as you mentioned, mixing station is one user interface, but audio engineers tend to work very differently, um, and that's completely fine. And the right. idea is the software should adapt to your use cases. <laughs> wow. So um, I just open the layout editor, so you can yeah move around items. You can add items. And since I don't want to spend too much time building stuff, I'll just show you one that already a user built. so I haven't built that, but a user did. So this now looks completely different. Um, he added like all sorts of shortcut buttons and quick access things here to wow. get started much faster during the show.
0: So it might be and something that that, that that the audio engineer wants to do, but it's also can be re, can be built specifically for the show. This is exactly yes. what I need exposed for that show.
7: Yes, and that's that's also being used. So Nixon station is used in broadcast environments, or for example, fixed installation in karaoke see, karaoke bars where there's a tablet on the wall, and they just have one fixed layout, and that's hmm. that's it. Yeah.
0: And and are you able to connect hardware back to your software control?
7: Yes. And how do you so do you you can use um, MIDI mm-hmm. on all platforms, so you can connect like physical uh, motorized faders, for example, to your Android or iOS device, and then control mixing station. And right. then wirelessly, for example, control your mixer can build small, yeah, small mobile remote devices.
0: <laughs> that's amazing, because a lot of times you might want to have a handful of like little sliders that are all the way up all the way down all you know, something that that's just there to, to work. Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. Um, the uh, and, and what's the cost of mixing station?
7: It, so the cost depends on which mixer. So mm-hmm. the license is per mixer series. Okay. So when I go back to the first screen, you see all the different mixer series. Mm-hmm. So each of them requires a license depending on what you use, and it ranges from uh, four dollars up to sixteen dollars depending on yeah, <laughs> which <laughs> that's model. A, that's <laughs>
0: great, and it's and it's uh, and it's and it's for each one of those. So if I wanted a, yes. it'd be uh, for the X thirty two or the M Air. Those would be two different
7: licenses. Yes. Yeah. Because oh, the amazing. the idea is you rarely need to use all of them. So. Right. And th- that's where the development efforts also is in adding and new mixes.
0: The pricing's good. <laughs> it's really, <laughs> really amazing. Uh, a really amazing piece of software. We have a ton of questions um, stacking up. So let's go ahead and I don't. I want to make sure we get to all of them. Uh, let's go ahead and jump into the first question.
1: First question from Mickey McChore from Manila, Philippines. Any chance for support of Yamaha PMDMCL and QL boards?
7: That's a very good question. Um, yeah. Yes, that's the answer. In the background, I don't know if you can see it, that's a Yamaha DM3 sitting here. And that's already has been added a couple of weeks ago. So the DM3 series is already available now. And the plan is to support the DM7 next. And then let's see, Um, coming back to the protocol question, the issue is the CL and QL series from Yamaha has a different protocol. So I would need to buy the hardware first to reverse engineer it. Um, but the DM5 and 7 are pretty similar. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Yeah, because a lot of us use the, the QLs in, in the event world, yeah. the QLs yeah. and the CLs are just massive, you know, as far as their
1: their penetration there. So, interesting. Um, our next question. Tommy Shads from St. Paul, Minnesota asking, what is a way to share layouts and is there a place where folks trade them?
7: That's a very good question. Uh, yes, you can share them. So Mixing Station actually has a, a thing called community feature. So if some people build some some layouts they want to share with the community, they can do that. Let me just show that. Um, so I can see here all the layouts that has been have been built by other people. I can download them. I can modify them if I want and also share them again. So there's like a yeah, community sharing approach.
1: Next question. Next one in for Mickey from Mickey Macachure from Manila, Philippines. I find myself having to control multiple boards on nearly every show. Any chance that we can get the ability to control multiple boards from one instance of mixing station?
7: Yes, I- that goes back to the initial question. Yeah, so it's it's technically quite complicated, but it will happen at some point.
1: <laughs> ne- next question. Peter Belbin from Houston, Texas asks, Do you have the ability to monitor audio levels on a set of inputs and generate an output to another system that identifies which input is currently actively handling a signal? For example, video follows audio.
7: Um, yes and no. So you can get uh, metering data out of the desktop version of mixing or via MIDI. That's also possible. But so, yeah, if you have a MIDI receiving device that can handle the metering data you could build something like that yes
1: interesting Uh, next question ronnie hofsey from tromso norway asks what is the focus for mixing station what is it best at and what is it supposed to not be used for maybe share some practical
7: examples okay um the focus it's, it's very broad to be honest it's focused from everybody from musician who does personal monitor mixing up to professional touring audio engineer so it's it tries to cover the entire range, which is not that simple. Um, what it's not designed for, probably if you're very very inexperienced and start using Mixing Station at the first place without knowing what your mixer can do or what features in your mic- are in your mixer, then you might be overwhelmed quite easily, to be honest.
0: Next
1: question. Douglas Carmichael asks, what languages is Mixing Station written
7: in? That that might surprise people. It's actually written in Java.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Interesting.
0: I guess that would make it very portable to move it around um, to a a lot of different platforms. Yeah, I I was um, just thinking about your last answer. And I was thinking that it could be something that, but for education or for less, less experienced mixers, you could, you'd still need someone advanced to get it set up. But you yeah. could, simp- it does allow you to simplify the interface a lot, right? I mean, you could have, you yeah. can just say, I'm just going to expose to you what you need to know. And all you got to do is move these, these sliders around.
7: Yeah, that's possible. Yeah, but just out of the box experience, is there is a quite steep learning curve, to be honest. Yeah.
1: Right, right. Uh, next question. Ronny Hofse from Tromso, Norway. What is the future for Mixing Station? Can we see Mixing Station also take a bigger part in advanced automation, not just controlling the mixer, but also relay what happens on the mixer out to other stuff?
7: In general, that's already possible. So the desktop version of Mixing Station also has an open sound control and a REST and WebSocket API. So you can already relay changes to third-party applications or whatever things you want. Um, And in the future, in my personal opinion, is just currently focusing on getting Yamaha onboarded because that's, as already mentioned, a very big market and user group there. And yeah, see what the community comes up with in feature requests.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I think it's it's really interesting um, to have... The, it could, in, in in many ways, especially ones that don't necessarily as are as effective at supporting OSC or other things like that. This is kind of an interesting translation opportunity where you have you have the thing the the, the web sockets, um, REST, OSC. Um, if something can talk
1: that, it can talk to the mixer through your through your software.
7: Exactly. Yep.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, next question. Jack Cannon from Phoenix, Arizona, wants to know: Any chance the Flow Eight will end up being supported?
7: Uh, I tend to tend to say no. The reason being the Flow 8 doesn't use any network connectivity. Use a Bluetooth. And reverse engineering the Bluetooth API is quite painful, to phrase it uh, nicely.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, next question. Jonas Dattel from uh, Germany. What platform is the most annoying to support and develop for, Windows, Mac,
7: Android, or iOS? <laughs> Doesn't matter what I answer, I will make somebody angry. <laughs> so, um, in my opinion, it's to be honest, iOS. Um, because oh, they have the yeah, they have the most rapid changes in in updates. So when there's a new iOS version, something will break. Android is to be honest, very stable over the releases and yeah. Interesting. Next question.
1: Rodney Hofse from Tromso, Norway asks, where is the best place to start learning to use mixing station to the fullest? Any courses out there or is it still the old good RTFM? Can we have sessions and after hours?
7: So um, RTFM is definitely a good start. Um, there are very good videos out there which show the more advanced use cases like the MIDI, MIDI programming and little layouting feature. On, so they have videos on YouTube, not from myself, but from very um, uh, very capable power users. And we also have um, communities on on Facebook, Discord, Reddit, and they're all happy to help you all.
0: I think we'd love to, we'll, we'll talk to you, maybe we'll re- uh, reach out to you. But after hours, what he was re- referring to is, you know, we are open yeah. 24-7 after after this. We'd love to bring you in, maybe have you spend an hour like with people getting started just to talk through some of those bits and pieces. It could be a lot
1: of fun. So we'll, Sure we'll talk to you about that. That'd be great. Uh, Next question. Jesse Mills from San Francisco, Bay Area, longtime mixing station user here. Thanks so much for the excellent product. Have you considered integrating BitFocus companion controls?
7: Yes, I actually have. Um, I started writing in BitFocus integration and then at some point I forgot about it, to be honest. It's still here. Um, I just have to finish it and publish it on GitHub and then there will be an integration. Yes.
1: Next question. Talalik Lopez Waterman in Agua Nueva, Texas. You mentioned making this as a response to all the iOS apps. Now that you've been around for a bit, have you thought about developing for iOS at all?
7: Well, I'm not sure uh, I get the sounds, question. It sounds, the like you,
1: it sounds like you, you do. I mean, because
7: this is yes, available yeah. on the iPad and, and yeah. so on. So,
0: yeah, it's really interesting. Um,
1: next question. Mickey Macaure from Manila, Philippines. Any chance of support for Calrec Serial Control Protocol?
7: And to be honest, I've never heard of that.
0: <laughs> but the the yeah, um, I guess that's their their remote control there. But yeah, Calrec would be really interesting to in, in general to be able to get a get a hold of. Are there are there some that are just completely um, you know when you talk about Digico, Calrec, um, hmm? uh, SSL, are those? just opaque to you, or is just not a large enough market for you to focus on?
7: Uh, DigiCo, I would say, definitely, they also have a good or somewhat usable open sound control API. Mm -hmm. And the others, it's quite hard to get those mixers get hands on them to find out what how they're behaving. I need them for a couple of months in my office.
0: Right. So it's just the expense of the mixer itself. <laughs> yes. That's the problem. Uh, very interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so it's, uh, but if you could get a hold of those mixers, you'd be able to
5: uh, build yeah, that. Sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Uh, next question. Peter Moore from Auckland, New Zealand asking I'm assuming you've seen Controller, which runs on Linux, Mac, maybe Windows. How does Mixing Station compare, given I'm reverse engineering a controller panel written for Mac, Windows to Linux? Are you familiar with controller?
7: Controller, no.
0: Okay. It sounds like, according to Peter, it's, I haven't seen it either, so I'm not, I'm not as familiar with it, so we'll, we'll keep going. Next question.
1: Jonas Dattel asks, uh, can you run mixing station on a mini PC and just have all the other users use AppLink on a tablet? Uh, yes, uh,
7: sort of. Well, AppLink... AppLink is a feature and mixing station which allows you to link multiple devices together. So, for example, if you have two tablets, um, you can use one for the detail view and one to show your faders and they synchronize the selected channel and stuff like this. So, you, you can run it on a mini PC, but AppLink won't help you with the thing you want to achieve, like controlling it for multiple devices.
0: So you can, to get this right, you you can have a a couple different devices that are all, and each one of them has different, you could basically build a custom layout for three different devices to talk to the same mixer.
7: Yeah, and then you can also synchronize them. So when you select channel on one device, it will update all the selected channels on the other device. And yeah.
0: Right, that's really interesting because then you could have a very simplified interface for someone, let's say, in front of how ha- you know, or someone on stage could have a very simplified one. I just want to do this, this, and this. Um, but then somebody else has something more, or you can break those up into multiple, um, multiple solutions. I see you jumping to uh, another slide here.
7: Yeah, just that, that's an example here for the AppLink um, on the left side. That's a monitor desk setup. So he uses AppLink. He has two instances of mixing station running. Mm -hmm. Uh, two different devices actually so when he moves the fader here on the bottom the top detail view will automatically also show that channel that he just touched here at the bottom so that's the use case for it
0: oh it's responsive so it's it's but that's a that's a responsive so it's got a behavior based on him moving that slider yes that's
1: really cool all right (laughs) next next question Douglas Carmichael asking, would you ever think of working with software-based cloud mixing platforms like Waves eMotion LV1 Cloud MX?
7: Uh, yes. Um, we, I, I already worked a bit on the LV1 system. It's not that simple, but I definitely took a look at it.
1: Next question. From Ronnie Hofse from Trumso, Norway. Can I use a mixing station via internet for controlling a remote mixer?
7: Yes, you can um, if you have like a VPN connection already in place. So mixing station can't just magically connect to your mixer. You need to have some sort of connectivity already.
1: Next question. Mickey Makichor from Manila, Philippines, asking any plans of integrating RF coordination tools, sort of like uh, the wireless workbench or wireless designer into a mixing station?
7: Not the full wireless designer, but um, I don't know if you're familiar with the integration on Soundcraft or Allen Heath, where they show, for example, the battery level and the signal level inside the channel on the mixer. Um, Such integration is planned, yes.
1: Next question. Nate Smith from Grand Rapids, Michigan. I love how Mixing Station can follow the physically selected channel on an X32. Any chance you can support the same functionality on the DLive?
7: no there is <laughs> so there's a technical limitation the d system is a split system where you have your mix rack which does all the processing and you have your control surface which is just a remote control in the end and the state of the selected channel is on the control surface and this is not exposed in any way so the mix rack doesn't know what channel is selected therefore the mixing station also can't know about it there is however a workaround for those mixers Mixing station has a feature called uh, powerful follow selection. That means when you solo a channel, or PFL a channel, on the mixer, mixing station will update its channel selection. That's That can be used on all compatible mixers as a workaround.
1: Next question. Craig Kadoki from Toronto, Canada asking, will you be adding support for Digico SD and S Series?
7: Um you know, it's kind of like it's
1: just a function of getting getting one in the in the office.
0: So what exactly. you need. It's really so, just a, yeah, go ahead.
7: Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I I either need always the hardware or a very good emulator. So some mixers, uh, some software, for example, the Soundcraft VI series, it's in the end the full firmware just running on your computer, on your desktop. And that's enough for me to build the app. Um well, where, for the Where yeah? are you based? In Germany. Where in Germany? Uh South Germany, near Heidelberg.
0: Um, I only ask because I think the other thing would be possibly finding a a rental company.
7: Yes, so there there have been, to be fair, there have been a lot of people um, telling me they can lend their mixer to me for a couple of weeks or months, which is very, I'm very thankful for that. The issue is if there is a firmware update, I still need to validate it to make sure the app runs. As I mentioned, most of the time it will run, but there's a chance it won't and then I would still need the mixer again, and that's a bit of a hassle, so a right two-edged sword. Next question.
1: Ronnie Hofsey from Trumso, Norway. Will the automatic ringing-out function be depending on the specific mixer features? If so, what is the known difficulties and implications on different mixers?
7: Yes, so to, to give a background, Mixing Station has a feature called automatic ringing-out, which um, can be used to ring-out monitor wedges on stage and it requires the mixer to have a a real-time analyzer so as most of them do by now and uh, graphical eq so currently you can't use this feature with only parametric parametric eq but if it has those two requirements then the feature should be available if not please um, just drop me a mail and i will take a look at it
1: Uh, next question Douglas Carmichael asking, can mixing station handle I.O. patching?
7: Yes, with a asterisk. So in general, yes, it depends on the mixer. Some models do not support it from the firmware side. For example, Soundcraft SI or VI series, you can't do that because it's just not possible with the firmware.
1: Next question. Jonas Dottel from uh, Stuttgart. First of all, thanks for this great app. We use it for remote control mostly. Is there a way to use AppLink over a TCP tunnel?
7: Not yet, but that's actually in the backlog.
1: Next question. James Haldane from Vancouver, Canada. Any plans to add the older Yamaha LS9 consoles? There are many of those in use.
7: Yes, so that... That goes back to the Yamaha QL and CL question, because they're actually using the same protocol. So the Yamaha QL CL used the same protocol as used in the M7 CL and LS9. So I suspect once I got any of those implemented, it should be possible to very quickly get the others on as well.
1: Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, has a question. I've got two mixers, the Tascam MixCast 4 and the Zoom LiveTrack L8. What is the compatibility with Mixing Station and how do you rate mixers that are
7: similar to these? Um, compatibility is none. <laughs> so for both of them, the manufacturers are not uh, supported at the moment. And from a rating perspective, I don't know too much about them out of my head to give a good... Um, Yeah, opinion, to be honest.
1: Next question. Peter Belbin from Houston, Texas, has a question. Would MixStation be able to become a proxy to allow a single control surface to interface with multiple, possibly across manufacturers, mixers?
7: Yes, at some point. So that's similar to the the other question, if it can connect to multiple mixers at the same time. And, yeah, same answer. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it sounds like that's a popular one. I think that it, it, yes. it, it, it's not something you think about obvi- as an obvious thing at first. You know, you think that there's one major mixer that's managing it. It's this kind of, I think, in a lot of cases, this centralized control that we that a lot of us use to, to manage multiple venue, venue, locations in a venue um, and
1: being able to jump to those relatively easily. Um, next question. From Mickey Macachor in Manila, Philippines. Thank you so much for Mixing Station. The great improvement to the UIs of different boards is very much appreciated. Where did you get the inspiration for user interfaces of different processors, say the multiband compressor UI?
7: Most of the time, regarding UI, um, I'm not a UI person. That's why some stuff, to be honest, looks quite rough. Um, I take inspiration from, in, in that case, from VST plugins because they have been building multi-band compressor UIs for years and they most of them are very easy to use. So that's where this inspiration came from.
0: By the way, for, for our viewers, a couple of questions came in one asked us to fix another question that came in through our askofficehours.com, the little QR code. and. Um, I in, in a I I did it I accidentally deleted your question um so if you can ask that question again <laughs> we'll put it back in um just letting you know that that uh that it was uh, we'd love to include that uh, yes it's your um I, I didn't mean to uh it was there's a there's a function that I that I hit um so if you can ask that question again we'll move it back in I, I know that you there it's it
1: was an accident on our end um uh, next question. Ronny Hofse from Tromso, Norway. Can battery levels on a wireless microphone like the Shure QLXD be shown in the UI like we do on DLive and other mixers alike? We could use a separate iPad, but would be great to get an alarm on mixing station as well.
7: Currently not, it's in the works. So there are two, two ways to do that. Um, I'm currently working on the easier one, which is asking the DLive mixer for the battery level. And the the more advanced one, with directly communicating with the wireless devices, is also planned at some point. Next question, Peter Moore,
1: Auckland, New, New Zealand, back again. Do you only control mixers, or can you control effects processors too?
7: Um, if you mean by effect processors like dedicated effect device effect devices, then no. Um, if you mean the effect racks inside a digital mixer, then yes.
1: Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What low-priced mixer under $1,000 US makes the most use of mixing stations features? Can what is And what is the license cost?
7: Uh, that's a hard one. A bit, a bit depends on your use case, I would say. Um, I'm personally a big fan of the XR18 or MR18, depending on if you want to parent or what, me. What's,
0: <laughs> what's the difference for what is the functional difference between the MR18 and the XR18?
7: functionally none
1: exactly it's the same all- it's just the preamps yep yeah, yep yeah. got it uh next question tommy shantz from saint paul minnesota i've been a long time user thank you do you do all this yourself
7: yes so um actually mixing station is just my part-time gig if you want to call it like that um i have a full-time job so i do mixing station when i'm not working but what do
0: you and- do what's your what's your regular full-time job
7: uh, software engineer.
0: <laughs> what What do you work on, on? What's your day job? To what kind of software? do you Ah, work on? it's it is
7: very broad. Um, i design like cloud architecture and develop software for factories, and it's a, it's a very broad spectrum.
0: <laughs> Interesting. And are you freelance or is it? Is, is, no, is I'm it...
7: I'm working for a very big um, industrial company in Germany. Awesome.
1: Uh, next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Back again. Where can we get find a list of compatible mixers? I think it's in the actual app list. I mean, I think when I went to the
0: when, yes. when I went to it in iOS and everything else, there I listed those. And I think you have a list too.
7: Um, I can just go to my screen. Yeah, there's a manual mixingstation um, It's also linked at the bottom. There's a manual, and there's this um, version and features, and they have the overview of all the supported um, mixers and the minimum firmware version required to make it work. That's great.
1: Uh, next question. Mickey Macachor from Manila, Philippines asking uh, I would gladly pay a good sum for a new app called RF Station for RF coordination management and monitoring. Just saying, Electrosonics and Shure support please. <laughs> <laughs> have have you have you looked at those? Have you thought about them?
7: I uh, yes, um it's I mean it's a completely different area to right, do all right, the right. this stuff. Um, I I definitely looked at it. Um, let's see, maybe. <laughs>
1: Next question. And JJ McKenna from San Rafael, California, asks, If apps like Zoom expose their far-end volume controls through an API, how readily could Mixing Station be modified to control these levels?
7: Pretty easily. So if, if I never heard of that request before, that idea before, to use Mixing Station for Zoom remote control. But if there's an API for it, it's usually pretty simple.
0: Yeah, there's a, there's so there's Zoom OSC which is obviously as as it sounds there's a there's an interface to Zoom. So theoretically you could be using Zoom OSC to control that'd be a really interesting model. Um, and again this gets back into kind of controlling multiple things at one time. Uh, yeah. but there potentially could be a way to do some really complex things about opening closing mics and things and everything else and tying that back into mixers. Again I, I think that It's really interesting to see what you've already built of just one mixer at a time and building the interface that everyone can look at and making it flexible. I think a lot of us are seeing, and of course, I I know there'll be a huge architectural, you know, lift is the, you know, almost taking some of what you see in companion, but from an audio Mm. engineering perspective of I'm going to coordinate many things. A lot of us are doing shows all over the world at the same time. So it's it's an interesting puzzle. Um, uh, Next question.
1: Looking for some live support, John Preto from Las Vegas and here on our panel, what am I missing? Tried connecting in trial mode, both from a Mac and an iPad, never connects, but passes diagnostics.
7: Um, is it the correct IP address? <laughs> it's a standard, standard question.
2: I can ping it and it passes the run diagnostics on both devices.
7: Uh, then it should work. What you also can try, um, go to the gear icon network and then you see all your network interfaces and make sure the correct one is selected as primary. That might interfere with some protocols. If not, um, I'm happy to support you afterwards. Okay, <laughs> thanks. Next question.
1: From Ronnie Hofsey from Tromso, Norway. What MIDI devices are really popular with mixing station?
7: Most definitely the Behringer X-Touch. Like m- most of them, I see the X-Touch Compact, which are just eight faders, a row of uh, potentiometers and LCDs. And after that, the bigger X-Touch. And after that, probably the Presonus one, the 16-channel one.
1: Next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Do you have a Discord or community?
7: Yes, I, we actually have. Um, I can just show you the link. So when you go to and Station app, At the very bottom, we have all our social media links here, Reddit, Facebook, Discord, and Twitter. That's
1: great. Next question. Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. Is the source on GitHub or private?
7: Uh, The source is private. Not because I don't like open source. I'm actually a big fan of open source. The issue is reverse engineering the protocols. Um, I also have some NDAs with certain companies and that prevents me from publishing any of those protocol specific stuff. I've thought about open sourcing some parts of it that just needs rebuilding of the app and I'm working on that as well. So maybe in the future, some parts of it will be open source, for example, the user interface so more people can build fancy stuff.
1: <laughs> Next question. From Marty Atias in Maryland, USA, and here in our panel, I've created a custom screen with just IFB push-to-talk buttons for a producer. What are some other unique custom use cases?
7: Most of them are pretty straightforward that I saw. And the, the more interesting one are like karaoke bars or like convention centers where you have complex routing and you press a button and it changes the entire routing and stuff like this. Um, and since the last version, you can also do set value with fade, so you can like build buttons for, um, for example, pushing the guitar player up or some speaker up. And yeah, so that's what's the most interesting one. Next question.
1: Next question from Douglas Carmichael. What Java IDE and source control system do you use? And why did you choose Java?
7: It's a very good question. So uh, first of all, I use Java 19. IDEs IntelliJ and source control is Git. And I chose Java because um, the initial Android version was on Java and I didn't want to port it to any other language at that point. And it worked up until now, so (laughs) I stick with it.
1: Next question. Adolfe Borez in Dudelange. How do you access the API for this great application so I can send commands from another application? Is there a place where we as a group can make request access to the API for us to have other feature recommendations? We need more direct access to controls.
7: Yes. So when you, this is documented in the manual as well. well there's one point called APIs, and this describes how you can access the APIs of the of mixing station, and when you want to request new features, there's on the web page this support button where you can either report bugs or request new features. This will then end up in this feature list here, and people can either upvote or downvote the task depending on how much demand there is.
1: Next question. Roddy Hofsoy from Tromso, Norway. Not only related to mixing station, but we will need a solid Wi-Fi access point that works in most stations or situations. What gadget is stable and known to work well with all that traffic that mixing station needs to transmit and receive?
7: That's a that's actually the most um, most common issue is Wi-Fi. So that's a very hard topic. <laughs> in general, I, I'm the opinion... The access point doesn't matter and it can be like a ten dollar thing as you need to make sure that you're using a free wi-fi channel which is not used by any other wireless devices or other access points that's one of the biggest things in my opinion so when you have for example wireless audio transmitters on 2.4 gigahertz it will block your wi-fi and make everything fail and when you get that figured out there are scanner apps scanning apps on android which can help you with that and even a cheap access point works really well. I personally use um, a TP-Link outdoor access point. It's like this long one, which you can just mount to a microphone stand, put it up a bit, and that's usually fine. Next question.
1: Nate Smith in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Is it possible to get the follow selected channel feature on the Allen Heath SQ
7: series? Yes, it should already be there if I'm not mistaken next question
1: and from ronnie Hofsey from tromso norway will the api of mixing station be able to signal which microphone is live in the uh, allen heath amm auto mix to make a video switcher follow audio using software like isadora or similar
7: currently the amm is not implemented at all in any allen Heath mixers i'm currently working on implementing it for q since that was the first one that has been requested but um it will be possible when it's once it's implemented yes so just create feature requests so i don't forget about it and that would be great
0: and is it de- but it does deliver the the levels right you could deliver levels via osc right now that your that, that the software scene
7: yes so that's possible but the auto mixer also has a indicator which says which mic is currently active and pushed by the auto mixer so right so that might not necessarily correspond to the highest level or stuff like this Right, makes sense. Uh, next question. Next question from Peter Moore
1: in Auckland, New Zealand. Not that I can afford one, but do you support Allen & Heath mixers? Yes, yes. I think we covered that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and, um, yeah, go ahead, next question. Ronnie Hofsey and Tromso Norway, are you planning support for the newly released Allen & Heath CQ series mixers?
7: Yes. So, surprisingly, even before the official release date came in, um, there was already a task for it. So, oh. I'm I'm working on it. I first need to to get one that Not that um, available at the moment here,
0: but. Yeah. And as you look forward, what are the what are the big things that you're working on right now? Like, what are the things that you're you're looking out to?
7: After today, probably multiple mixers at the same time. <laughs> 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 it's not that not that we
0: were very pushy about it, but uh, no, no. But
7: uh, I see the demand, and there are very good use cases for it.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, I think that the fact that I think it's it's going to take a little time. I really didn't know a lot about the software until until Marty brought brought you in, and as I started to look at it, getting ready for the show, and and what what really hit me, and now especially as we've talked, is just really thinking about having the idea that multiple devices or iPads or, or computers could be looking at one mixer, but then they could also be looking at many mixers and you could end up, what would be really interesting is to have, I know this will sound crazy, but to have the interface, not even modal where I could have, you know, one mixer over here, another mixer in the same interface would be also another thing
1: that would be really, really interesting. Um, next question. James Haldane from Vancouver, Canada. Do you have a favorite Android app?
7: In general?
0: Um, in general, yeah. Mm, more general question there. Is there anything question. that you that you love on Android?
7: Probably my Plex music player. But. Oh, there
0: you go.
1: <laughs> Very good. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, does Mixing Station expose an OSC API for controlling
7: different mixers? Yes, uh, the desktop version does. So when you have it installed on macOS, OS, Windows or Linux, there is an OSC API you can enable and then you can use mixing station as a proxy to communicate with the mixer.
1: That's great. Um, next question. Another from Douglas. And I just noticed that the DM3 support does not support IO patching. Is that a Yamaha protocol limitation?
7: Uh, it should. Oh, you're making me nervous. <laughs> it, it should be there.
1: <laughs> uh, next question. From Marty Atias in Maryland, and here on our panel, can you invoke multiple instances of the software?
7: Yes, like not on mobile platforms because that's a limitation of the mobile platform, but on, right. on desktop you can. Yes,
0: how many of you have ever implemented at one time?
7: Um, you mean how many I had open, or
0: yeah, how many have you opened instances separate?
7: Unlimited. I mean, <laughs> it's very very. It's
0: just because uh, it's, it's not. It's, it's a pretty light piece of. Uh,
7: yes. Yeah, uh, it rarely takes any resources, so you can like have 20, 30 instances. Doesn't matter. Next question.
1: Tommy Shans from Saint Paul, Minnesota, has a question. Have you helped other audio manufacturers with software interfacing besides the X Air?
7: Mm, it depends how you define help. I definitely gave my input to phrase it like that. <laughs> I haven't designed it for them or gave or built code, but I I was involved in certain. Um, Programs during product development.
0: David, thank you so much for your time. I know we grilled you. We grilled you this. <laughs>
7: all, <right>. all fine.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's really, really amazing. I think we're just really excited about your software. I think a lot of us. This is an introduction to a, a lot of people here for the for the software, and I think it's just a fantastic project. We're really, I'm I'm, I'm kind of amazed that obviously there's some people in our audience that have already are already heavily using your software, but I'm amazed that given what I do. I've never, I haven't really seen it until we really got ready for the show. So we got to, I think on our end, we have to help, um, help you uh, spread the word because it just looks like a fantastic platform. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us today.
7: Thanks a lot. It was a pleasure.
0: <laughs> and we'll, we'll see if we can get you in for, a, to do some, uh, maybe some after hours, some sessions with our folks to see if we can get people off the ground, because I think there's a lot of people today that are really excited about the software.
7: Mm-hmm. Sounds Great.
0: Thank, thank you so much for the producers for all the great questions. We had a lot of questions today, uh, so we, we just buzzed right through them. Um, so uh, so thank you so much for all the great questions, both in the first hour and for the second hour. Thanks to the panelists. We can't do this without you. And um, thanks to the incredible crew on the back end that tried to keep up with all these questions that were rolling in um, as people got excited. And uh, so we had a great team managing the questions, managing uh, getting people in, managing the schedule, uh, developing all the software that we need to run this show. And, of course, um, actually running the show and, uh, and cutting the show today. We really appreciate um, all of your contributions. Uh, the Tlaloc Traversal, uh, we traveled, wow, 332,000 miles uh, to, uh, to cut. To, to, that's what we would have had to walk if we had all had to walk over to David and ask the questions. <laughs> um, that's 535,000 kilometers. And that is 2.633 billion Bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. By the way, that's a record. I think that we we set a record on on how many uh, how many miles we covered answering these questions.
1: John, what's the record for questions asked? I think we're like one off of it. Yeah, I think we're one short.
0: We're one short of the record. So yeah, but uh, that was a lot of questions. D- David, your, your surgical your surgical
6: answers. Uh, You know, keep it (laughs) moving really fast, (laughs) so.